SBS live streams and podcasts are supported by advertising. I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'm best when I function as like a fan writing music for the show so that my initial watch, my initial time I see the show, I'm taking all these notes of my emotional reactions. You don't own me, I'm not your property, so take a shifty little bitty eye And I've been told, especially when they know it's a doozy of an episode, they'll actually be watching me on Zoom instead oh of the show. <laughs> Welcome to Eyes on Gilead our podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. We're dropping some special episodes in light of it being Emmy season and um, we are joined by a very special guest today, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I'm Fiona Williams and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS and I'm joined by my friends, colleagues and fellow resistors, Natalie Hambly, Managing Editor of SBS Voices. Hello. Haiti Island, Channel Manager of SBS On Demand. Hi. And Sana Kadar host of All in the Mind for ABC Radio National. Hi. Hello. It's good to see you all again, albeit over while. Zoom, because that's the way the world is. Yeah, we've, we're dropping these special episodes in light of it being Emmy season, so we've been very lucky to uh, rustle up some Emmy nominees. And today we're joined by The Handmaid's Tale's composer, Adam Taylor, who is nominated for specifically for episode three of season four, The Crossing, which we refer to as the torture episode. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're so lucky to have Adam here um, because he's been on this show from the start, so it's going to be amazing just to talk about crafting all this wonderfully rich uh, score that that accompanies uh, this wonderful season. We're doing this over Zoom so we can see Adam's beautiful um, music studio where he's surrounded by a whole bunch of vintage synths and keyboards and um, all this incredible equipment. So you don't have the benefit of that, but trust us, it's pretty gorgeous. So what do you think? Let's maybe just get into it. We've got so many questions for Adam. How about it? Yeah. Yes. His recording studio looks like some trendy underground whiskey bar. It's beautiful. It's very cool. I wish I was spending my lockdown there. Same. Hi. Hello, Adam Taylor. Welcome to Eyes on Gilead. And huge congratulations for your Emmy nomination for this incredible season of The Handmaid's Tale. We are thrilled to uh, have the chance to speak to you. Your signature music has enhanced our experience of this show all the way through, so thank you. <laughs> and you've made us cry a lot, so how dare you. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you've been pre-warned, but we do love to go deep on the details here and um, all of the ways that the production and the music adds such subtext to the show. So thank you for indulging us <laughs> with our personal obsession. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I hope you've cleared your schedule. Cause... Oh, good. Yeah, I've got nothing to do for about a month, so... <laughs> I don't think the podcast needs to be that long, but I'm on vacation, so it's great. Fantastic. We'll settle in. Um, yeah. Well, you've been involved from the very beginning. How or has the way you've scored the show changed at all across that time? Um, you're building up this body of music. <laughs> Talk us through it. 
The biggest change, I mean, this uh, is the first TV show and kind of the biggest and first job I landed. So I, um, I, I got brought in at the beginning, as you said, by Reed, because I had just worked with her on this really great small film that she did out in New York. And she was pushing me on to all of the, the big people that, you know, knew this new guy that she had just worked with, et cetera. And I had not done any TV. The most I had done at that point, I had done a couple movies and hers and then mostly ads. So I was pretty sure it wasn't going to work out. And I started sketching some ideas with Reed. I met Bruce and I was surprised when I got the call that I was even going to be doing it. So I think the biggest change from season one to four is that I learned how to write score composition for the show. So <laughs> it was informed completely by the aesthetic of Reed's and Bruce's and everybody involved in production and then the collaboration with Reed and Lizzie and everybody else on the post-production side. So I think at the beginning I even went back and listened to some old season one stuff and it's very, I, I know it's, I don't want to self-deprecate or anything, but it, it was so clumsy <laughs> and um, lacked a certain elegance to how great the show was back then. And I look back and I'm like, wow, they were so gracious and kind to keep me on <laughs> for me to figure out what it meant to score a show. And I think this season, season four, I finally kind of started to understand what my job was, if that sounds like it makes sense at all. Wow. Uh, I mean, <laughs> clumsy. Oh, good Lord. Um, but so, well, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, well, what, how, what have you decided your job is? How have you arrived at that? I think uh, I was getting, well, as I wrote, you know, at the very beginning, especially season one, I started to learn more because as a result of season one, I did get other jobs and other opportunities to learn how to write. And because I mean, up until then, you know, I, I would write these instrumental pieces of music and upload them for licensing or whatever. So whatever I felt like that day would be what I wrote. I felt happy. I'd write something upbeat. I wrote, you know, so I felt depressed or something, which happens a lot when you're working with music and all that sort of thing. You'd write something sad. And so learning how to kind of put that in the very back seat and instead serving the artistic you know, view or even the, the emotional currency of a scene uh, was very hard and it was a lot of trial and error. When I look back on how many hours I had to put in just to get to a place where everyone was happy at season one versus season four, I think I've cut down my, my time in half now. I would spend... Whew, 15-hour days at season one and just barely just eat and work uh, just to get by and made it by the skin of my teeth to the finish line of the last episode. And I think that first night was the best night's sleep I'd had probably all my <laughs> life, <laughs> crossing that finish line. <laughs> so to go back on that, what that means is I, I realized I, you know, how to better fill in the spaces that were needed or even to go against what's on screen sometimes when that was appropriate, rather than just uh, writing four or five ideas for a scene until one of those looked good or felt good or sounded good. Uh, until I learned actually how to write to film, which was starting to really open up in season two, where I really started to understand it through, again, the trial and error and having hours and hours of amazing TV to practice on. So, you know, 
it's like being given a, a an amazing instrument as a novice rather than like I did. It was a thrift store guitar to a not a thrift store guitar to eventually you know you you, you don't get to learn on great pieces of equipment or great pieces of art. So I was I was fortunate in that respect as well. Also learning from the show as the tutor because it does allow so much space for the actors to do their thing and that in turn gives me space to fill in the space and add the subtext as you said earlier and and all that the other shows that don't really give the time for a scene to unfold or to breathe and uh, I think that's why the show also is so successful in addition to the fact that it is about something right now that I think we all relate to so I think I rambled on. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I'm wondering, within the the show, you know, do you have a favorite world to score? So, like, Gilead versus Canada versus the Colonies mm. versus Jezebel or Chicago's, you know, Chicago this season? Yeah, ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think my favorite has to do more with um, writing a piece uh, or, like, a theme, especially in season four, that could be built upon because one approach with working during the pandemic and COVID and all the restrictions was that we were limited on the size of a group we could record with, um, with the orchestration. So I knew if I was able to write a few themes that would kind of, we could re record, you know, one section and it would be, you know, used in this episode. And then I would use that session and then add an additional part and kind of was able to build so that I, there were some scenes by the end of the show that did have a larger sound because it had been being, you know, piece, uh, pieced together through the season. But as far as like a, a setting goes, I think I really enjoy being in June's headspace. Mm. And I don't know if that's because I get to do that the most. So it's the most fun. I also enjoy the times when there's sometimes a scene and there hasn't been any music spotted there or there is something there and it's very unusual. And then in, it's more or less my task to interpret what we what we want to happen musically but through the lens of the handmaid's tale and what we've developed so far as our timbre and our colors that we've used in the in the show with music so i guess the short answer is i love when it's just lizzie on screen doing something whether it's yelling at somebody <laughs> or <laughs> or uh saying something amazing um that the writers gave you know june to say because, you know, she's, she's the hero, the heroine, I suppose. Yeah. Do you have any, in, in terms of being within June's headspace, I find that really fascinating. Do you have any sort of rules? Is there any sort of sounds that you go to for that, that you have um, built up over the years? Oh, I think one of the reasons why I like June's headspace is because it is the most free area, usually, or the most free space, given an episode because often she's restricted so much in the episode, you know, physically, whether it's her her outfit or something going on, everyone has agency over her. But when we're in her headspace, the whole world is open, you know, there's all this area to explore. So I can kind of, those are the times, especially earlier in the, the series, when there was more, vo more voiceover work, uh, those are the times I really got to kind of take departures from the usual sound and really get in and add colors and shapes that we could then, you know, um, allow to occur in other places. So in a way, it was almost like kind of a, um, like a little furnace that started the things that could then be released out onto the show. <laughs> mm. 
I'll also um, ask you just a quick question because like we watched this show many like many times. <laughs> um, have a feeling though that you might watch yeah. it more than we do. Um, what is your process like and like yeah. how many times do you end up watching each episode? Oh yeah, I think I might be tied, not tied. I think the editors watch the show more than I do, but I have to be second because <laughs> the first step in the show is once it's gotten up to a director's cut or a locked cut of the show where it's more or less not going to change. I then get to sit down on a conference call and watch it in real time with usually whoever's there in Canada at the office. It's always a couple executive producers, sometimes a director, sometimes Lizzie, uh, almost always the editor, and Sheila, one of the executive producers, are always there as well. And we watch the episode in real time um, because I, I think as on a personal, I discovered... And also I learned this as well, working in other areas, in other ways, that my f initial, I'm best when I function as like a fan writing music for the show so that my initial watch, my initial time I see the show, I'm taking all these notes of my, of my emotional reactions. And I think it's even in calendars called Watching Television with Adam. Um, and I've been told, especially when they know it's a doozy of an episode, they'll actually be watching me on Zoom instead of the show because I'm the first, you know, outsider in a way because at that time I haven't seen anything. So they watch me watching it and then you know, I cry, I laugh, whatever, you know. So I take those notes and I use that initial emotional reaction to... Uh, inform how I write the score for the rest of that episode. And they leave me alone. I usually have, uh, you know, the calendar sometimes gets a little hairy, especially at the beginning of season four. It was a little tricky. But I usually have um, between seven to nine or ten days per episode wow. to uh, write it all and demo it out, which is basically I'll record the synths, sometimes all the piano um, and any other things. So all that's left before getting it approved is recording all the strings and any other things that I couldn't uh, do here. So uh, at that point, um, I've watched the, I watched the episode maybe, uh, I don't know, 15 to 20 times per episode, but then the scenes that have music, probably 20, you know, wow. 40 mm. times. And sometimes, oh, <laughs> there are times, uh, more recently, a friend finally got in the show and wanted to watch it with me and you know, a scene would come up and I would hear this one particular line delivered by an actor or an actress. And I knew exactly that this music was about to come in because I had listened to that line probably 40, 50 times because it's the first thing right before <laughs> I start recording the cue or whatever. And uh, so I've seen the show a lot. And I think if there was ever a trivia night, I would probably be the winner for <laughs> Hemi's Tale. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Can you also just do a podcast yeah. of watching TV with Adam? That just sounds, <laughs> sounds so much fun. I would love to. <laughs> yeah, I've really learned through the learning how to write score, you know, I watch movies, TV, everything so much differently than I used to, you know, uh, what is this, seven years ago now. Um, it's so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds um, vaguely horrific having um, everybody on a Zoom call watching you watching an episode of The Handmaid's Tale because I know I just want to, like, hide in a corner and cry when I watch an episode. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I definitely, when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm doing my best not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a question around some of the trademark Handmaid's Tale sounds. So things like um, that heartbeat music that I think kind of starts 
towards the end of season three, um, and that mm. droney, glissando, kind of sliding sound. Um, you know, these are really iconic Handmaid's Tale sounds. I find them incredibly triggering, <laughs> emotionally triggering. They take me back to <laughs> right back to the moments where I've where I've seen them, and I probably start crying. But um, yeah, I really, I'm really interested to um, to know how you create some of these sounds. Yeah, so that iconic, the glissando kind of almost atonal thing from season one was one of the initial ideas developed through Reed, where um, she basically was like, I want a piece of music that slowly builds in intensity and that is psychologically just tormenting the entire time. And I think I was initially just toying around with, I knew I wanted it to be like a gliss where it just kind of starts at one note and slides down to another because it's kind of like, imagine if you're nervous and then you're like, oh, you, you have that lump in your throat, and you're, you know, you're trying to get rid of it. So that was the initial idea. And then I realized that when I was trying to perform it on my synth that it was too clean sounding. So I have this really old 70s era tape echo that I had just had serviced, so it sounded great. And I was like, well, if you speed up or slow down the tape and you're only listening to the effect after the fact, you can actually just hit one note and cause the note to change by slowing down the tape, which took uh, many, many takes to finally get it to where it was just close enough to where it was doing because it kind of modulates from this major thing to a minor and it needed to do that still so it was very hard because it was a matter of getting a sharpie and marking on this dial that's 40 years old and hoping that it relates to the motor each time because it would get a little funky each time because the motor's old too and eventually I was able to get four keepable tracks of that that I've been using since then because it would be impossible to try and replicate it. So anytime you've heard it since on two, three, four, if you hear it in five, it's going to be one of those folders with those initial takes in it from 2016, 2017, whenever that was, because it's it was so hard <laughs> to perform and do. <laughs> and then the heartbeat sound, it just was like, I think it was something that Lizzie said in an email once. And it was also an idea of like, for the most part, Something that I've gotten feedback on often is if there's too much of a felt tempo at certain times in the music and the score, uh, that it was uh, not necessarily preferred. So there were lots of ways I would try to insinuate tempo to add you know, intensity or even to help us kind of, if the music is taking more of the, the attention from the viewer, it's nice if the music makes a little more sense to, in the ear, you know, so trying to find a way to show people that the meter is here or, you know, here's the tempo. So the best way to do that often was just, uh, you know, I've got a couple drums here and play a couple, get a sample and add it in. So it's this heartbeat, but it also has that low scent, you know, uh, low uh, timbre where it's just kind of hitting you right in the chest. And it is like your heartbeat mm. in a way. And and it gets, it, you know, anytime music can help you get into your own body, it, it's doing its job, whether you get, you know, little goosebumps or the tingle on your head or, you know, that's that sense in your chest, that's, that's uh, that means the music's doing its job, you know. Definitely, yeah. Mum's got work or mum's got work. That's, yeah, that's the one that gets me all the time. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that one, right. <laughs> that track the mom's got work it's the opener of season three but initially it was this completely other um 
piece of music in there. I'm trying to remember. I think it was maybe Bowie. And it was like a last minute thing. They, because I had also written score, which is very like, here we are, the beginning of the season. And it was like, uh, I think it came down that Bruce just wanted something completely from, you know, left field. But he liked the specific thing that the Bowie song was doing. So that track ended up just being this like, oh, it probably won't make it. But here's, you know, here's something. And then it ended up placing. I was so surprised. <laughs> Amazing. Um, now, of course, you're nominated for the Emmy for The Crossing, episode three. What an episode and what a range of moments yeah. to score. I mean, you've got you've got torture and romance and tragedy. It's all in there. <laughs> Can you walk us through that episode, um, kind of the, the key moments you wanted to hit and, yeah, yeah just, just the mood because it does, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. The great thing about episode uh, uh, The Crossing was that it was Lizzie's episode. And in times past, a few times in season one, a few in two, and a few in three, I was able to, you know, talk to her when I would hit a wall and not know what to do. Or often she would just already have uh, input like, hey, I know you're probably going to start in this season or this episode. Here are my thoughts on this one scene because, you know, whatever. She had ideas because she's full of amazing, great ideas, musically speaking. And she was the director, so there was access. Like, she was at the music spotting, watching me cry, you know, and and uh, all that. So just the access to her, to her insight, being June for so long that she's, you know, she's been since the beginning. And obviously she was directing as well, and um, it was just... Anything she had to say, I was gonna just drink it up. So the the, the first couple of things that you know, watching this the, the show, as you said, it goes from so many places at the beginning, where Nick is trying his best to help her. She's being tortured by this super creepy dude. By the way, that was the cre- like. I'm so glad they went for that that casting. That guy was crazy, perfect. But uh, <laughs> initially, the torture because you know, Hamid's does go dark a lot. I want to try and find a different place because we had never been in the ice compound. Um, so I wanted something different for that, which is the opening. And uh, and then obviously the big kiss and the leading up to the kiss, uh, I knew had to be completely different from the rest of the, uh, the episode. And the thing that was probably the most challenging was the kiss scene because we had never done that before. We had never done this beautiful romantic scene like the, the camera swings around and it's this big moment and then she ends up leaving and we all think she's going off to the colonies and we're going to spend the rest of the season in this horrible dark place. Obviously we know something else happens there. Also that episode, they, uh, I was a lot, a lot less time than normal. I think I had, uh, actually I don't even want to say because I don't want to say it wrong, but it was a few days less than I wanted, so I immediately prioritized the kiss first where I think after the music spotting I went and got food and came right back. And my initial idea was a little too romantic. I was like, ah, oh, dang it. And so I left it because it's really hard once you've scored a scene and you've watched it, you know, ten times and then you write something and you demo it out. It's really hard to go back and completely rewrite something new that day. So I went back, I did some other stuff, and I'll usually give myself one or two hard cues a day to write. And then once that one's done, there's like all those little filler ones where it's trying to just, you know, a piano or some ominous synth stuff and throw those in. So then finally, I, oh, I, and I ended up having a friend come over and I was like, hey, watch this scene. What do you think? 
and it was the kiss and she was like yeah it's cool i'm like is it too much she's like it doesn't you know it doesn't quite sound like the show or whatever i was like yeah yeah okay so then i went back and uh it had actually been the beginning of this other little idea that was on my phone which was the part after the big kiss where they're kind of hugging and holding before she goes and um it's kind of reverse engineered from there, landing that part and writing it. But then once uh, once I kind of uh, found the theme I wanted to do, it was just kind of it just kind of happened and and it just worked out, and it ended up being uh, just the second day. It was it was great and and Lizzie like ended up saying like oh my gosh you nailed it I loved it I'm like yay it was you know because I was so nervous because there was a, a you know, oftentimes they'll they'll put in temp music to a scene if um, mm. just you know when they present to the the network, mm-hmm. and there was this really beautiful piece of music and I was like oh man this is gonna be really hard, <laughs> and uh, and then the, the the sound for the the eyes the compound and the torture and all the other times um, I I just wanted something really just you know metal nails in your ears and just like this kind of driving uh, beat that is underneath it just kind of driving her toward you know the compound and everything so that one was like oh just make a bunch of scary synth noises that are metallic and get a bow and play a bunch of metal weird instrument things I have here and I had a buddy uh, he has this old calfskin drum I was like hey I have this BPM can you just give me like two minutes of a accent of this whatever and he did it and he nailed it and put it in and and then from there on out I think the, the episode from those two points you know the, the the torture the compound and then this beautiful very lyrical piece it was uh, leading up to the the, the kiss uh, those were like, kind of like the two points that I had to fill in because after the kiss it's basically Radiohead and then it's it mm-hmm. so that was the end of the episode for me so the next thing I did after those two was probably leading up to the kiss because I knew I wanted it to, with how how beautiful that was that Lizzie set it up. I and I wanted to write it for a, a quartet, mostly because I wasn't sure of the size we were able to get yet, but also because I knew I wanted it to be this really small, almost like they were there watching them, like this little trio or quartet off to the side playing this little, you know, piece of music. Um, I remember. I'm sorry. The the episodes do bleed together a little. Is that the one also where where <laughs> Hannah? Yeah. My goodness, that was a oh, lot yeah. of music. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and, I, I, and I, as I say that now, I recall when I saw the numbers because you get a little PDF with the information of how much score there is, and it was uh, usually it ranges from like 28 to 30 minutes of score, and this one mm-hmm. was like almost 50. I was like, oh my goodness, oh, wow. you know, less time and everything. I was like, this is like, this is like a, a finale, like normally the kind of music. But there's so much that happens in that that episode. Yeah. Not one thing that had music yeah. could be without it. It all needed it. So, and also with it being Lizzie's first, and I, I just wanted to try so hard to make her so proud of me as like you know her composer, and also just the schedule you can't really afford too many revision notes so you really got to swing hard that first time and uh i got really lucky there were some notes of course there's always notes here and there but for the most part lizzie was really happy with it and uh, i was too and um but yeah that was a a lot of writing (laughs) 
that is a lot. I'd completely forgotten the Hannah scene too. You're right. It's, it's just so much in that episode. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder you nominated. The, yeah, the dinner with Lawrence. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and that was the other thing. Like, I was try. I was. I mean, even with this this season. I mean, I obviously I try as hard as I can every season. But I knew this season with how they, they told me so much was going to happen this year. I was like, I really need to develop and get more melodic so that I could, in turn, add more oomph to the emotional things that were happening for our characters. Before that, like, there were certainly times in previous seasons, uh, for sure, with, with uh, all the, the, the beginning of everyone starting to get out of Canada in season three, and even with season two with uh, Eden and, and all those other characters. There's, there's always times, but... Season four, it just felt like I really needed to get in there uh, melodically. And, and when there was the, I like, you know, they asked, oh, do you want to submit an episode? I was like, I knew even before, because usually I have to go and think, oh, what episode should I submit for this or that? And I knew right away, I emailed them back the fastest ever. I was like, 403, Lizzie's episode, <laughs> that's what I want to submit. That one came from somewhere <laughs> else. It was like so informed by Lizzie and it was such a beautiful episode I knew right then and there that's the one I wanted to submit for any you know anything coming up and yeah <laughs> other people liked it wow um well you mentioned the finale so um so was that a contender as well or, or can you talk us through sort of how you approach the finale I actually hadn't uh written it yet when the submission time came, I think I had only gotten up to episode uh, five or six, maybe. But I, yeah, I mean, the finale as well, so many moments. Yeah, that was exceptional as well. That would have also been great. But yeah, it just didn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of the finale... One of the questions we have is about how you signify the different characters, the characters that we love, Serena and Fred and um, Moira. Do you have any instruments or sounds which sort of signify each one that you use? And in that case, maybe you could talk about Fred in the finale as well with his big moment. Yeah. Uh, initially, I was looking to do that, to write themes for specific characters. And I did eventually, I think in season one, there was a few themes tied to Nick and, and June but I think as an approach, I tried to not, uh, wherever possible, unless it was requested, which does happen sometimes, I tried not to reprise too many ideas or repeat too many things up in, uh, until season four. And when I, when I realized, like, maybe I thought repetition was, in a way, uh, a workaround to get home a little earlier for dinner, maybe. <laughs> but I realize now is I think repetition has its purpose. You know, it drives home. A point. Um, so I, I, there was uh, a theme I was hoping to attach, even leading up to the season. It was uh, it ended up being I ended up writing it, and it was kind of in you know in the waiting. And I really wanted it to be for June, in a like sense where heroic things were occurring. But as the episode or as the series kind of unfolded, I realized that while I'm rooting for her and she's been you know all the trauma and everything. Once she got out of Canada and was dealing with her anger and all of the post-traumatic stress and everything, I realized that that music was completely inappropriate to try and put on her. So it ended up just being a thing like of writing as needed per, you know, per, per person, per scene or whatever. But initially I did have like this, uh, the kind of what 
might be considered like the Handmaid's. It's like this cello theme from season one that repeats a lot, and it's it, it's one of the more often callback themes. And I originally, I always wanted it to be like Fred. You know, it's the the cello, the the minor thing, and it's like that weird um, plus octave, like you know that weird thing. And that was always going to be Fred. And then I was like, oh, it, Fred, you know, while Fred is integral, like the evil really is better than him. It's this whole system. So it ended up becoming more of a Gilead theme. Yeah, and I, I was looking for any possible place to reinterpret uh, or revisit the, the themes for uh, June and Nick in episode three, The mm-hmm. Kiss, and even The Walk Up. But just couldn't find it anywhere. You know, I was trying. I really wanted to get more uh, more mileage out of those things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a couple of themes here and there. Like there's uh, definitely the something I call uh, the theme reconciliation, which almost always was tied to, I think it was initially when Emily gets out in season three, um, and it's used throughout for uh, any time June had any sort of liberation, whether it was internal or external. And there's even a request it was used when she finally steps off the boat which I thought was lovely because it the first time it was written, it was for when June has uh, her her walking partner had died because of the gunshot wounds. And she talks to this young girl about if she wants to be a mom or not at this hospital. Mm-hmm. And then she leaves and she's in the rain. And then Aunt Lady is like, let's mm-hmm. go. She's like, actually, I want to go back and stay with, uh, mm-hmm. gosh, I forget her name, the walking partner. Um, of Matthew? What was that? Of Matthew? Of Matthew. Yes. Yes. Okay, I I won't win any trivia nights. I'm already forgetting stuff. (laughs) Do I win? I'm canceled. (laughs) So, yes, you win. I'll get the drinks. You get all the answers right uh, for the (laughs) trivia night. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) So, uh, it was initially, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, that piece was, like, initially kind of uh, signified June's turning point where, in a weird way, um... That's where I think the whole series pivots. Because up till that point, she had almost been uh, just uh, kind of absorbing the punches in a way. And then she finally decided she wanted to do something, which is what led to the flight at the end of season three. And and since then, since that moment, her pivot, you know, it's been she is now aggressively fighting back and pushing back and all the ways that she's able to while surviving and trying her best to take care of those around her. And then for it to be a callback again for her to finally, uh, much like the girl that uh, she t- the, was uh, in the plane at the end, now she gets to go to Canada. So it was a great way to kind of revisit that theme, talk about like freedom. So a short answer, I suppose, would be that oftentimes the themes are more tied to the emotional spaces that one of the characters may find themselves in rather than a character specifically. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, that hospital episode um, with of Matthew. Um, the references to Belinda Carlisle's song, did you do the beeps? <laughs> no. <laughs> that, was the, that, that was just some weird thing. I've always wanted to ask whether it was like a writer's room thing or a production <laughs> thing, you know, because there definitely are intervals. Anyone that's stayed overnight in a hospital, there's definitely intervals that you pick up on in the machinery and in the various beeps and stuff. And it was funny how much that sounded like that song. And um, the initial idea, too, was because, like, I, I remember I think I got an email from Lizzie about that. And if there was any way to incorporate it in the, the score at all. But um, 
I didn't really need it. She sang it, and then I just kind of warped music around her for those moments, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, such a such a great little use of of, of music like that. Cause I, I know I don't recall the name of this documentary I saw. It was in IMAX, and it was about this climber who um, was out on this like icy mountain, and uh, something happened where he was in a horrible accident, and his buddy. Much to his dismay, he had to leave him behind, and he had to slowly crawl back, and like melt ice, and his leg was broken. And at one point, he felt like he was going crazy. I think because of the dehydration, and he heard as audible as anything this song that he hated just so loudly. <laughs> wow! And I thought it was interesting because like that does happen when your when your consciousness is kind of you know breaking into shards. The you have the weirdest you know mental kind of things occur like that. Mm, totally. <laughs> hey, I'm wondering, can you explain how it works um, coordinating what will be original score in the episodes versus music? Is that like a Bruce call or the episode director? And how closely are you working with Maggie Phillips, the music supervisor? Yeah. Um, so with score and then with soundtrack, definitely uh, there are overlaps sometimes. But usually the soundtrack that's placed is usually almost locked. So then I will have to kind of work around that if needed. So, for example, there's like something like, oh, the score leads up to that. If there's any way it can kind of in a less, uh, you know, bumpy way kind of dip into the score, uh, the soundtrack or whatever. So I don't work too much with Maggie. I know she kind of she works on her end. And usually those choices, it's like a Bruce a director or Lizzie thing. And there have been times where like, hey, we have this track here and everybody loves it, but this and this. So we need you to score it just in case. And there, for example, uh, there is this uh, the scene toward the end of season four when Emily is going to confront the aunt about maybe helping uh, you know, get uh, information about Gilead af- uh, after, you know, they, uh, she refuses to uh, forgive her in the yeah. library and she's hung, you know, she hung herself on, on the tree mm-hmm. and it's like this choral thing. And originally it was this other piece of music that was also choral, but it was more of like a song and it sounded really like kind of warbly and cool and old, but they're like, oh, we're not sure this artist doesn't usually allow, you know, syncs, licenses or that sort of thing. Um, so there's the times when I was like, okay, you know, sh- they let me know, sure enough, that song's not available, so we need you to score it. It's like, no problem. So there's that kind of thing happening usually. Right. But uh, those 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 decisions are usually, and uh, de- definitely um, if Bruce wrote on it, and uh, I find most of the episodes, he almost always had selections for specific scenes because he's he wanted the you know that song for mm. that scene or you know that kind of thing. And speaking of specific scenes, the one scene that really stuck out to me this season in terms of the music is in episode four when June and Janine find the milk tanker and they drop in. Like that that music there had such a great yeah. beat. It was pulsating strings and it really had you on the edge of your seat. You know, can you describe how you compose that scene in your thought process there? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up too. Mm. I was, um, it started in, uh, I suppose, episode three where when... June is finally let in to the compound and sees kind of the various uh, other folks that are being Mm. uh, held there and tortured and whatnot. And when we were on the initial music spotting call, 
I think it was just like this really low, horrible kind of sound, just like dread. And uh, we're on, you know, Lizzie is on the call and everybody's talking about it. And I, I think, I remember, I think I was talking about how in the uh, movie, oh, I forget, I'm so bad with names of things. Um, I want to say it's like Same. kidnapped or something like that, where the director actually had Billy Corgan just do a bunch of these hard rock, like crazy metal sounding tracks to be played for the child while he was being held as like this weird, you know, tactic. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if that's what the score sounded like when we're in this compound? It's the music that they would pipe in there that is loud and weird and like kind of trancey or metal or something off that's just blaring in there all the time. So that turned into that piece of music which was there, which was a, a couple of synths I sequenced, a drum machine and some detuned, I like this um, drum skin. And I, you know, you get a drumstick a little wet and you rub it and it goes, <laughs> it makes this weird, creepy what? sound. <laughs> And so it became this weird composition for, like, that torture scene. And then that kind of kernel became this new, which, you know, we're in June's headspace. It's this weird sound. So that now was able to be, like, that turned into several other kind of variations of that, which was, you know, when we see him being chased through the forest, it's the exact same one because that's what's going on in her head at that point because now she's the one holding the the... The, the keys as it is and uh, <laughs> so when they're when they're you know at the train and they're running and there's all that really great sounding like those those layers and the synth and stuff mm. it's in a sense it's just trying to, to add that intensity and that propulsion you know as much as we can in the handmaid's world because you know if it was any other show you could just do whatever you know but it's got to <laughs> fit within yeah those those parameters to 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 work for the show you know Propulsion, that's the word that totally sums it up. That's exactly, yeah, what I felt watching that. It was awesome. Yeah. I really love the way all of the kind of analog synthy elements blend so well with the, with the orchestral and the piano elements so often. And I'm interested in that aspect of the composing process and, and how much of it is, you know, just you in your beautiful studio <laughs> behind you um, and how much of it is, is kind of collaboration with ensembles or, or orchestras. Yeah. Especially um, especially during COVID, you know, where we're all working yeah. remotely. Yeah. There was uh, an initial decision in season one that uh, unless it was inappropriate, I wanted the piano to always uh, be muted with felt so that it had a very kind of soft, dampened sound. And originally we were also going to do the same thing with the orchestra, but it just didn't work. And it was, it was a cosmetic decision to kind of uh, coincide with how this world of Gilead is, is, is kind of like this shitty photocopy of real life in a way. <laughs> so it's like this degraded lo-fi version of what's supposed to be. And, hmm. um, but it ended up working out. But the piano thing, it's mostly a stayed as like a muted thing. And the, the time that I had worked before the show for Reed, I had used piano and she had responded positively to it, but she did not know at the time that I was not at all a pianist in any form. <laughs> I had bought a very inexpensive piano that a very gifted piano friend recommended for the price point just so I could have it to record and do like two finger or maybe three finger little, you know, chord blocks or whatever. And slowly started had to start learning piano for the show. 
and eventually got a little bit nicer piano finally um, after I felt like I deserved it because I learned how to play it, you know. But the, the, uh, the, the interplay between the analog synth and the piano and the orchestration, um, it all kind of, it, for the most part, it's decided even before recording. I'll, I'll do my best here in my little, my space here with uh, sample libraries and even occasionally hitting up a friend saying, like, hey, you know, remotely, like, can you record, here's this PDF of some music, can you record this cello or this violin part for me? just to add it on top of the samples to make it a little more uh, palatable for when... Because when once I'm done writing the demo with the, the fake stuff and then all my stuff's real, all the, you know, the bigwigs watch it and have notes and stuff. So if I'm relying on um, a piece of music to be good because of the, the real instruments, I, I need to make sure that that's the case as well. So having a live instrumentalist on the demo. But it, it just was kind of like a happy accident that the way that the rooms have sounded uh, that we've gotten to choose through uh, Peter Rotter and his whole team of amazing people in combination with the stuff that's just naturally going on here kind of just worked out in a weird way, you know, just it all kind of fell into place. But yeah, it's, it's, it, the, the work's all done here. Like, as you said, the, the analog keyboards, you might be able to see some of them behind me. They're, uh, it's kind of a, uh, a bit of a philosophy because I'm afraid of any of my friends that I came up with, I, that we did music together, if I were ever to not do something the hard way, they'd probably give me crap about it. So, like, wherever I can, <laughs> I'm trying to perform all these old pieces of, you know, all these old relics here, learning as I go. All of this, this top one up here in the back, I don't know if I can say names of anything for fear of, you know, whatever. But, uh, like, that one came with a little booklet. It was about 40 pages, and uh, I ended up reading it cover to cover just so I could learn how to program a synth and make sounds. Um, so any 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 uh, uh, viable, like, uh, combinations or anything was all by sheer accident. <laughs> <laughs> You're too modest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Let's talk flashbacks they're such a big part of this yeah. show and you know they resonate so much for what they say about where the characters were and where they are now we had a couple of devastating ones this season um i immediately think of vows um you know the luke and um you on the steps yeah well, what's your approach with with the flashbacks you know given they're different <laughs> they're different people almost yeah uh, yeah, with flashbacks, uh, term, you, you mentioned, uh, oh, right, when uh, June tells Luke she's pregnant. Is that, is that yeah, the one you meant? Yeah, that's I'm thinking of, but yeah, there's so many. Yeah, oh. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, wherever possible, unless, I know there's some flashbacks to season one where it's like the beginning of Gilead, but uh, later on when it's, when it's June and her life, I know from the beginning they wanted to have soundtrack music, like just... You know, there's music everywhere back then, you know, and, and in Gilead, it's quiet. There's, there's no radios. There's no, you know, music or anything. So I know there's a lot of that going on earlier in the series. And then later, it was more just trying to, uh, and as much as I could, and I keep saying that turn phrase, because, uh, you know, it's, it's always, every time you figure something out, it changes on you with, with music. So, long story. Anyway. <laughs> I'm distracting myself. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, with those, I always try to just go super pure tone, you know, no Gilead whatsoever. Pure, you know, score purely the emotion, uh, you know, w like with that, the what a devastating episode where June's um, 
for lack of a better word, insecurity about Luke's love for her being tied to the fact that she can have kids and her mm-hmm. his ex couldn't have kids and returning without her. Man, that was a lot of crying that morning when I watched that episode, I'll tell you. That was mm-hmm. so well written, so like so real, just so mm-hmm. believable. Mm-hmm. I, I, that was one of the, I mean, they're all fantastic episodes, but that one in particular, they handled such a uh, complex situation when anyone would be in that situation. Like, you really do look at who you are to others and what you can or have offered to them. And if, if that's a reason for them wanting you in their life or not, you know, it's just something we can all relate to. Yep. You're going to make us cry again, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. We cried Jeez. all the way through um, trying to recap that episode. Yeah, it's it's yeah. stunning. Yeah. Following on from that, it sounds like you have a like a deeply empathetic approach to the show and how you compose for the show as well. Is is that is that does that sort of resonate with you? Is that sort of how you approach it? Very much. Yeah, I think my way of self therapy or self care before it became a job was to feel my way through whatever by music. You know, um, my old, old, old computer had all these songs, you know, on it that no one will ever hear. And those are just the beginning of doing this. You know, it's just me being an internal person, internal processor, introvert, whatever, all those, all those words that we like to use to classify each other. Um, but... Whatever we call it, I tend to need to be alone to work through navigating life, reconciling what you see in the world with what you believe is important and how often those don't align. So my way of kind of working through that and even working through old traumas, um, I've always, uh, from a young age, I guess, I've always, once I started learning how to, you know, play music, I think I've always kind of used it as a way to nav, like a, a, another tool to use to navigate, um, you know, life. Even like the you don't ever like thinking about the the phrase itself, you know, music. You, you play it. You know, you don't uh, do it or own it or whatever. You just kind of play it. <laughs> Speaking of other moments from this season, one thing that was different this time around was we saw, um, we were in Canada a lot more, but we saw a lot more um, refugee moments and moments with Luke and with Moira was there. And there was, you know, there was, there was lots of survivor guilt and, and um, yearning. And was there a way that you sort of like weave some subtle changes to the music themes around Luke and Moira and all the refugee moments this season? Yeah, there was the something great. I really enjoyed this uh, season was that we got to see a little more of Luke's side mm. yeah. and his struggle with um, that June is choosing to stay behind, that, you know, she sent Nicole and Moira made it, Emily made it, this whole plane of people made it, and yet she still hasn't come. She's choosing to stay. And, you know, we we don't delve too much into his insecurities in their relationship as much as hers, but I really liked being able to get in his head and... Not that I've been through anything remotely close to his. I think at my default stage, Luke's headspace is probably where I could most easily hit or shoot yep. from the hip, mm-hmm. you know? Season one, there was one episode that mostly centered around him uh, after the pilot. You know, yeah. it, we catch up with him a little bit. But for the most part, 
season four, we really get to get into his headspace. And there is a, a little bit when I know when he buries the persimmon, there is a hint of a theme that I wanted to be kind of like a reconciliation between Luke and, and June. Mm. As I said before, I, I try my best to have my initial like watch of the show be that that time when it's, you know, the music spotting. Um, so I don't really look at scripts or anything, so I don't really know too much uh, what's going to be coming down. But I had this initial sketch. It was, he's burying the persimmon for some sort of, like, mm. anything to do, right, To for June. Yep. And it, there is a little bit hint of it later that uh, I was able to kind of put in there with them. But it was hard because their reconciliation was obviously so complex and... Um, you know, I did not know the, the leading up to it that June was going to kind of keep such a large piece of information about Hannah from him, you know. So mm. it was unfortunate. Once again, I had these great hopes of like, reinterpreting a theme <laughs> to go on. But it was like, oh, looks like something else is happening. So um, Is it ever? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty common, I think, inside and outside of work, art, whatever, you know, best laid in intentions, that, that, that phrase. Yeah. Sorry, it's just the, it all, uh, you know, it's quite a, a condensed bit of work. Mm-hmm. And then for the first time since before season one, I've had vacation, like a long vacation, I think since uh, mid-June, which has been crazy. I'm I, a little worried I forgot how to do this for when... I have to come back in and start writing again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's muscle memory for a lot of this. <laughs> You've lived with this show for, for years. I hope, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know how it is. It's like you're, you're working, you're working, you're working, and you're go, 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 and you're kind of afraid to stop or worried to stop because, you know, the inspiration's flowing, the faucet's running. You're worried if you turn it off, will you be able to turn it back on again, that sort of thing, so... I don't think that had anything to do with your question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, when you do think of something, do you sort of, you know, um, put it down and then hope maybe you might come back to it? Like you don't, you don't want to lose those kind of moments of inspiration, surely? Oh, yeah. I ha- On my phone I have uh, this app that uh, records at a little bit higher of a res and I have this little mic, but I rarely use the mic. I just kind of will turn it on and... More, more lightly because I've just mostly been at home relaxing and really trying to not do anything work-related where, uh, you know, just hanging out the house. It's mostly just voice memos at this point, you know, saying, oh, okay, you know, just this, you know, you know how it is when you hear your own recorded voice. It's so uninspiring. But I'm actually <laughs> thinking about maybe moving my, because it's, it's a small little upright, moving it to the house because I'm still going to be off for another month or two probably. One of my main goals about this piece, this little bit of time I've had off is not so much to like go on trips or anything, but to get bored to a point where I start hearing like music again, um, un- unprovoked. And it's like starting to happen. So I, I definitely want to have something at the house soon so I can start recording ideas. It's always nice to have a little little stockpile when, when a project starts up. And, you know, there's other things that might land before, you know, next season. That's so sort of stay sharp if you can. Yeah, for sure. You were saying that this job has sort of changed the way that you watch things now. Is there something that you've watched lately, a TV show or a movie where you were really moved or impressed by the score? Oh, 
Um, well, a funny thing. I actually, um, I meant more just uh, with consuming, like, you know, not even so much in the context of watching something and appreciating the score, but just um, really buying into whatever it is I'm watching and believing it and feeling it and, 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 and really seeing in each scene, like, all the little decisions that before working here I was aware of, like, how they change, like, just the editing, where they put the camera, when they switch, you know, it's just... There's so much more to it now that I appreciate. You know, it's like, for example, uh, I saw this uh, miniseries called Genius about Picasso. And I immediately went to, I think it's LACMA that has some pieces there. And I all of a sudden just was moved to tears at this one they have of, uh, I think it's Dora, right? His, uh, His muse for that period of time in Paris or whatever. And you learn a little bit more about some, and then you just appreciate all the more. I suppose that's what falling in love with another person is too, you know. So, but as far as like things I've watched recently that had amazing score, I'm trying to think. I've been mostly watching really silly, dumb things like comfort, <laughs> like my equivalent of junk food lately. Yes. I got uh, a projector. It's really warm uh, where I live, and. I got a projector as a, just to kind of like watch movies outside against the oh, cool. f- front wall of my place. And I'm just putting on the silliest movies just to be dumb. And, you know, neighbors walk by or my girlfriend's there with friends and stuff. So, But I, I did uh, recently find out, much to my surprise, and I, you know, I love it, that Danny Elfman did the score for Nacho Libre, which was such a surprise to me. I had no idea he had. <laughs> Nacho Libre bring one of the yeah. silly movies I watched. <laughs> it's a good silly movie to watch. We're all watching, you know, there's no judgment in lockdown. And, yeah, good silly movies are great movies too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when work is so um, dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Well, thank you so much. Um, of course the Emmys are coming up. Are you going to get to go? Yes, yeah, it's, I, I didn't think they were uh, happening uh, in IRL, you know, uh, but I got a thing the other day in the mail and uh, with proof of vaccination. I think uh, you, I'm allowed a plus one, and, but I know they're not uh, selling tickets, so it's like, and I don't think there's going to be um, a governor's ball after. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, I'm going to go. So that That's is cool. one fun thing coming up. I, I'm going to probably go camping soon as well. And then, you know, watch some more silly movies outside. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Um, Well, look, thank you so much and best of luck. Not that you need it um, for the night. We're so grateful for the time you've taken to talk us through this. This is all, you know, so enriching to the whole experience. Mm -hmm. And um, we really appreciate your thoughtful answers. It's um, been such fun to talk to you. Um, Yeah, and if the world ever opens up, we will take you up on that trivia contest. We're going (laughs) to... 100%. Lock it dead. (laughs) I will brush up. I will pull out all my old things and watch all the old... Yeah. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I've right. nothing else to do. You're on. I think it's going to be a while yet, so you've got some time. Um, Adam Taylor, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. I, I loved yeah. hearing all of the kind of details on the process and how he puts it all together and works with the writer's room and Lizzie. Mm. It was fascinating. Yeah. Can you imagine watching it over Zoom? And yeah, having having people watch you watch it. Oh, my gosh. 
I love how musicians think. I love hearing them talk about how they they do their art. So that was that was a real treat. Mm, yeah, I was going to lose it again when he started talking about um, vows, episode six. Um, mm. Yeah, truly, that was wonderful. And I, I do hope we can get him back for next season. Look, thank you for listening. We, we hope that helped. This All these extra episodes are really just enhancing my appreciation of this season. It makes me want to go back and watch, watch the episodes. And... Didn't mean this as a plug, but why not? Um, you can. If you're in Australia, you can watch um, all of uh, season four of The Handmaid's Tale at SBS On Demand. It's all streaming up there as a book set. And if you speak other languages or know someone who does, SBS has also subtitled the series in simplified Chinese and Arabic. So you can watch it that way as well and enjoy with that beautiful score. And look, we'd love to know what you think, especially about some of the insights from today. So, you know, reach out on Twitter. I'm never not there. I'm always online. <laughs> you can find me at anything but Fifi. Natalie, where can we find you? At Natalie Hambly. Haiti, are you back on Twitter at the moment or are you taking a break? Oh, I dabble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a lur- I'm a lurker. I'm always reading. <laughs> and where can we find you? At Haiti Island. And Sana, how about you? At Sana underscore Kadar. And remember to use the hashtag eyes on Gilead so, um, so we spot your tweets. So we may be back to drop a couple of bonus episodes here and there um, from our Zoom rooms. But, uh, yeah, stay well. And um, we think we might change things up a little bit in light of our special guest today and play us out with a bit of a theme from his nominated episode, much discussed, Kiss on the Bridge, the big smooch between June and Nick. I didn't dare ask if it was real. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to know. I've made that mistake before about asking about my theories, so... I don't think it happened, but it's, yeah, a wonderful scene to score. So best of luck to all our Emmy nominees from this wonderful show. And um, look, let's play out with the Smoochie Bridge score. <laughs> <laughs>